Start recording. Today is February fourth, twenty eighteen. This is your host. Welcome to another episode. And today we have a very special guest, all the way from London.、Uh, yes? Nottingham, actually. London, close, a couple hours away. Okay, <laughs> Nottingham, England.、Um, our guest is Nadim Ahmad, and he's gonna come here to tell us about the Great Sasanian Persian Empire, which I'm sure all of you are just dying to know.、Uh, but before we start.、Um, I'd like to introduce、uh, Nadim. Actually, Nadim, you can probably introduce yourself better than me. So why don't you tell、uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do,、uh, how did how what got you interested in the Persian history? Sure, sure thing.、Um, so first of all,、uh, thanks for having me.、Uh, my name is Nadim, as Carl's already mentioned.、Um, I run the Eron、uh, Turan Living History Society, which is a, a UK-based、um, living history society. That reconstructs the, the the times of the Sasanians and the Sogdians and the Bactrians and various other Iranian cultures in the late late antique and early medieval periods.、Um, I sort of got into Iranian history.、Um, funny story.、Um, I don't know if any of your listeners know the video game Rome Total War.、Uh, do you know it at all? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, yes, of、it. course.、Uh, so there's a <laughs> all my audience members. They they, they, they gotta got know it. it. There, there's a mod for Rome Total War called Europa Barbarorum. Have you heard of that? Okay, I good. I have heard because it. it is it's amazing. Um. Anyway, the the, the Pahlava faction on Europa Barbarorum really got me into Iranian history in, in a big way, and 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 I was playing this game, going, you know what, I want to do that. Um. So I, when I was at university, um, I got in touch with the Reenactment Society, who knew some. Uh, cavalry stables up in Yorkshire, and I used to go there to train. And so from there, I sort of started getting my equipment together, started researching the military equipment, and the. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Are you、uh, of Iranian origin? Uh, yes, sort of.、Uh, our family migrated、uh, from there to India several generations back, and、um, myself, I was actually born in in Scotland.、Um, so、uh, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say you have a very interesting accent, and. And to us American years, you know, it just okay, sounds great good, good because we we have we still there's a colonial mentality is very still very much alive in America today. So anything that that sounds British, it it just makes you like ten times more distinguished. Okay,、British. good to know.、Uh, British people tell me I do not have a British accent. They tell me I have an American or a Canadian or something else accent. But I mean, if it works for you guys, it works. So yeah,、uh, they they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> They, they don't know what accent it sounds <laughs> like. <laughs> okay, so、um, but more about、um, sure. Anyway, so、um, putting together my first、um, Sasanian armor back in 2012, I was obviously researching this,、um, and you know, researching it, you have to research military equipment, but you also end up researching political history, social history, economic history, and all other aspects of art and material culture. And then you kind of just get sucked into this world of buying more books and reading more papers and looking at more images, and that's kind of how I've ended up where I am today, essentially,、um, just through through a hobby more than anything else. Yeah, I remember seeing you post on Facebook of you dressing up of uh, uh, like various Sasanian、uh, noblemen or a、uh, Sogdian.、Um, Nice. And those are those are pretty impressive costumes. Yeah, I have to say,、uh, we spend most of our time now in Sogdiana, just because the evidence base for material culture is so much better. But I mean, my heart is still in Tessafon, 
secretly, <laughs> secretly. I I'm with you. Um, I do have a question about the title of your Facebook mm-hmm. group, uh, Iran, uh, Iran, uh, and Turan. I mean, what does that mean, like for for our lay sure. listeners? Sure. So, um, Iran and Turan is it's in the Middle Persian language, and Middle Persian is the ancestor of modern Persian. Um, Iran literally means Iran. It's it's Iran. It's the land of the Iranians. Um, Ud means and, and then Turan is. I guess the best translation of Turan would be Central Asia or or this the steppe. Um, you know the bits that weren't considered part of Iran on the northern and eastern borders of Iran, um, and it kind basically the area of uh, the Sogdians, right? The, the Sogdians. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think Sogdiana would be considered part of Iran Shah. It might be considered part of um, Iran Vij, which is a separate religious thing. Um, but yeah, essentially Sogdiana and further north and further east. So um, all the Turkic Turkic yeah. lands, right? Yeah, the exactly. The, the Turks were definitely considered Turanians. Um, the Sogdians were an Iranian people, but they kind of lived in Turan, so it, it gets a bit more complicated with the Sogdians. Um, yeah, yeah, and they play a major part um, on the Silk Road, on the exchange between China and Persia, and and further beyond to Rome. So I, the, it's just a very fascinating history, but. Today, we're going to talk about the Sasanian Persians, and then we're going to talk about the glory day of the Sasanian Persian Empire, right? And I think in the West, you know, the Persian Empire usually gets a short thrift, uh, right? Because it's always like a lot of time, it's always comes out as a villain, you know, like in the 300. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and part of what Aaron Turan, I'm just going to call it EUT from now on, does is it tries to correct that notion. It's like, you know what, we had our own culture, we were our own entity, we weren't just the bad guys to the Westerners. Um, yeah, essentially. Uh, but you're completely correct. And, and so it, it is a thing that needs, needs correcting. Um, we're going to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in fact, the Romans, right? I mean, the I think the Persians are only ones they they recognize as as kind of like civilized. They're so, they're civilizational absolutely, equal. Absolutely, <laughs> they yeah. look. The, the um, Romans probably had a higher at, regard for the Persians than modern Western historians do. To be honest with you, um, the Romans definitely recognized that these guys they're serious. They're formidable. They're not just another barbarian tribe on our borders. They're the second half, you know, they're, they're the other major world power, and we need to treat them accordingly. Um, the the best example of this is probably in the first century BCE. So in the first century BCE, the Arsacids, whom I'm going to talk about in more detail later, this is just a quick intro. The Arsacids, they were conquering um, Iran from the northeast. They were taking over the Seleucid or the Seleucid um, territories. And from the west, the Romans were, you know, taking in um, Anatolia and the Levant. Um, and so these would be known as uh, Parthians, yeah, right? In yeah, the West? Uh, that is a term I do not like because um, the Parthians, um, we use that term more in a sort of ethno-cultural sense as opposed to a political political dynasty. So the dynasty was um, was the Arsacids, ah. um, and it's named after the founder, um, Arsakes in Greek, or um, Arshak um, in um in, in, in Persian. Um, okay, so maybe this is a time for me to give our audience a brief background 
that led to this part of the history. So what we're talking about is at the end of Alexander the Great's conquest, who destroyed the first great Persian empire. Um, but after Alexander's death, his his the, the new empire he built uh, on the basis of the old Persian empire basically just falls apart and his generals divided his uh, empire. And one of the, one of his generals uh, uh, founded the Seleucid, which is, which cover, yeah, which cover much of the former Persian land. And that would catch up to what you're going to talk about now, right? So the Seleucids are established in Iran and Eastern Iran and parts of Anatolia. Um, Around the third, well, middle of the third century BCE, uh, a group of Iranian um, peoples appear on the northern borders. They're called the Dahai, um, and a province is named after them called Dehistan. Um, they incite a revolt in uh, a province south of them called Parthava or Parthia, and then they capture it in around um, 238 BCE. Um, prior to this, um, Arsakis or Arshak I is crowned in Asak, which is a city in uh, northeastern Iran, um, you know, just east of the Caspian Sea. And between the 3rd and the 2nd centuries BCE, the Arsakids, also known as the Parthians, but I'm going to call them the Arsasids or the Arsakids for precision, uh, they conquer most of Iran from the Seleucids. Um, they have a, a very mixed Hellenistic Iranian culture. They, they refer to themselves as Phil Hellenis on their coins. And, well, you, you kind of had to have both in, in this period because a lot of the, the most of the population of Iran was still Iranian, but a lot of the nobility and a lot of the landowners were Greek and, and, um, and, uh, you know, they sort of spoke Greek, had Greek on their coins. Um, and which is why they have a mixed culture. Um, over time, they gradually become more and more Iranian um, up until, you know, the, the first century AD when they're sort of a fully Iranian, uh, Iranian dynasty. Um, importantly to note, the Arsacids are one family among many different noble families. And um, initially, the early Arsacids, um, they maintain their legitimacy uh, by military prestige. They're, they are just knocking out the Seleucids everywhere. Um, but then... I'm sorry to interrupt you uh, one more time because what I hear from you is very interesting. That you said after basically the Macedonians' uh, conquest, uh, the upper class has been replaced with Greeks, and the Seleucid kind of maintained that same superstructure, and that in fact the Greek or half Greek aristocracy maintained its power throughout the. Um, uh, the the coming of the Parthians. Uh, they did, and well, sort of. Some places were more Hellenist, Hellenified than others. Um, Bactria, in particular, is extremely uh, Hellenified. Um, well into the uh, well into the Arsacid period, um, and probably later, um, certain coins in Bactria and in uh, neighboring Sogdiana show Hellenistic models um, into the Hunnic periods, for example. Um, Oh, that's right, because there was a Greek Bactrian kingdom, right, in existence absolutely, for a absolutely, long time. Yeah. And they sort of set the cultural tone in um, in Eastern Iran for a long while, especially numismatically, um, especially on, the, on their coins. Um, yeah, that's right. And after they uh, converted to Buddhism too, right, because the whole um, – the the whole Buddhist the Greek Greco Buddhist culture that would flourish in Afghanistan 
the name you lose oh, me for the moment. I, you're referring now. to the, um, the Gandharan culture, exactly. Yeah, their, their art is extremely, extremely Buddhist, and and it, it's it's a really cool style of art mixing Greek and native Indian and native Iranian things. Um, and there's a lot of realism in Gandharan art as well, but it is just scenes from the life of the Buddha, um, everywhere. And it's, it's completely beautiful. Yeah. And, and they're the first to actually create, uh, Buddha's image in statues because that wasn't a thing before, but they somehow just, uh, take the, all the, uh, Hellenistic uh, art and sculpture, and and marry that with a Buddhist uh, imagery, and and that then Buddhist statue become a thing, you know, and that's how what led us to like the Bamiyan exactly. Buddhas, exactly. And, uh, and the art style of these guys, the Gandharan art, influences Bactrian art uh, long after this period, long after Gandhara sort of ceases to be a thing, and influences art in Xinjiang up until you know the seventh and eighth centuries. And I'm not as well versed in proper chinese art but i can certainly from the cursory glances that i've had there's definitely parallels there oh yeah the, i mean the early buddhist art uh, that was i mean the buddhist art travel from the area of bactria through uh, xinjiang to the uh, china proper and a lot of the earliest chinese buddhist art is very re reminiscent oh, yeah. of the gandhara Absolutely. art yeah. style yeah but I'm sorry to, detract, to detract you all the way to China. So let, let's get back That's to your, I will be visiting China later on in this talk. Um, so, but yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So the earlier Sausids, um, this is so they're they're conquering the Seleucids, who were Alexander's successors. Yeah. Earlier Sausids, they maintain their legitimacy to the crown by their military prestige, and they have a lot of military prestige, right? Um, and it sort of culminates in the Battle of Karai in 53 BC, which is the first, well, first major clash between the Iranian forces and the Roman forces. Um, after this time, the power of the noble families begins to grow significantly. Sorry, I'm going to mm -hmm. stop you for a second because Battle of Karhai, that was a great victory. We, can, we, can, we can't just like can't just slide over it. You're correct, yeah. Um, so the Battle of Karhai, 53 BC, it's fought between um, Crassus, who is one of the three big players in the, the Roman state. Um, he's, he's sort of the richest guy um, in Europe, essentially. And uh, he's going, hey, uh, that Alexander guy, he was really cool. I want to be him. And so he decides to, um, he decides to launch a campaign against, um, against the Arsacids. Um, uh, before he did that, he was actually the patron of Caesar, yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. He's Julius throwing Caesar. money around, um, helping Caesar out. They're, they're kind of, they're kind of buds. Um, exactly. Yeah. And and then in fact that he um, I think <laughs> his launching of campaign against Persia uh, in a way kind of helped Caesar's rise. <laughs> by, by, but but I, I will okay. let you talk about so the, the battle. battle right. um, you have uh, you have Crassus and and he he has a very very large army. Um, I, I forget that. I think it's around 40,000, but I forget the exact numbers. And it's your standard Roman army, you know, infantry-based, very limited cavalry. Their cavalry is predominantly Gallic because the Gauls um, were sort of the best cavalry known to the Romans at the time. And uh, they, they want to invade Iran. Um, they receive an offer from the king of Armenia going, hey, uh, why don't you take our route? It's uh, safer up here, and we can give you some 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 soldiers to help you. Um 
Now, Armenia was in a bit of an odd state at the time. They were having a bit of an um, bit of a civil war. Uh, Crassus wisely decided not to take the Armenian route because what would probably happened um, with that his soldiers would have been sort of essentially co-opted into fighting an Armenian civil war, and they might not have never really made it to Iran in the first place. So he goes. Uh, a southern route um, through a place called Karai, which is in Haran in um, southeastern Anatolia, southeastern Turkey, and there he meets the forces of a, a general called um, called to the Roman sources as Surena. Uh, that probably wasn't his actual name because the Surens were a Parthian clan based in Sistan, which is southeastern Iran. Um, the Surans are very important in Iranian history because they're sort of the kingmakers um, of all the Arsacids and, to be honest, the Sasanians as well. Um, so they're, they're an important very clan, important. right? Yeah, southeastern Iran, the Sistan is it's in, yeah, it is it's really important in Iranian history. Um, its importance has been understated. Hmm? Wait, are they are they us? Uh, of the Saka or the Thithian origin, because Sistan is named Sistan after is Saka, right? Saka. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so Suren was hmm. Suren was probably a Parthian, but there was probably a sizable Saka population in Sistan in his army. Um, the Saka had. Um, yeah, the Saka were sort of making inroads in Sistan, making inroads into India um, via the Indo-Saka and then later the Indo-Parthian kingdom, um, which is... Uh, but is there a co- connection between the Parthians and the Saka? Are they uh, somehow related? They're um, Yeah, they're kind of related. Um, they're both Iranian peoples. Um, so the Saka are East Iranian peoples, um, a bit like um, a bit like uh, like Pashtos or, or Ossetians, whereas the Parthians are West Iranian, like like Persians or, 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 or Tajiks or Afghans. So they're, they're kind of like cousins, I guess is the best way to put uh, it. Okay, but they both have uh, kind of like the nomadic... Uh, mounted uh, horse archer um yeah, fighting they, they, style, uh, they right? both well um they both use that in combination with um a hellenistic infantry force exactly um now surenas was using an entirely cavalry force which was unusual for the um unusual for the day um and it's sort of w- one of his his genius points was using this cavalry force against what was almost entirely an infantry force, um, just out shooting and out maneuvering it. Um, so Surinath's army had, I think, 1,000 uh, heavily armored um, heavily armored cavalry and 1, 000, sorry, 9,000 um, mounted archers. And so what he'd do is he'd use the mounted archers, he'd just shoot the Romans, and the Romans didn't really have any missile capability of any comparison, so they just had to sit there and get shot. Um, until they. Oh, that's an in- interesting part, too, because even the Roman cavalry uh, from their Gallic allies, most of the Gauls, even though they rode horse, but they don't shoot no. shoot from no, the I horse. Guess, <laughs> they, they are, yeah, they're not horse scenario, archers. They might chuck a few javelins but that's like what 10 meters range it's it's pretty paltry in comparison exactly yeah. um the arsacids the well um the parthians are, they're just shooting the romans the romans are like they, they don't like this very much obviously um so they launch a cavalry attack and i think this is crassus's son who who launches a cavalry attack um the matter archers just turn around and you know they run away and uh the romans are like oh hey they're running away let's go pursue them and um 
Oh yeah, Bad <laughs> that is not a good idea. They fall right into Suerna's trap because meeting this Roman cavalry are Suerna's um, heavily armored Persian cavalry, and these guys wear armor head to toe. Their you know their their arms are protected, their bodies are protected, their legs are protected, their horses are protected. The Romans haven't seen anything like this. Um, this is a Persian cataphract, exactly, right? exactly. It's it's a cataphract, yeah. Um, and they're carrying these big lances that are four, you know, three to four meters long. They're heavy. You got to hold them with two hands. And they're riding in saddles that essentially have seat belts. They have big curved things that curve around your thighs and hold you into the saddle. And it's it's actually really stable to ride in one of these things. Um, was this before the invention of stirrups? It was a long stirrup? time before the invention of stirrups. Yeah. Oh, so that's why they have to strap themselves yeah, in. Exactly, oh, exactly. makes sense. Um, they're riding these saddles, and they have horses that are bigger than the Roman horses, significantly bigger than the Roman horses. And they're they're coming at these Roman cavalry full steam with these big lances just skewering them. Um, the Roman uh, commander of this cavalry force, Crassus's son, is killed. He's beheaded. And then the Parthians um, put his head on a lance right up to the Roman line going, hey, Look what we got! Um, needless to say, yeah, needless to say, wow. Roman morale is not particularly good after this, and they just kind of get cut down um, in cavalry charges and barrages of arrows. Yeah, I mean, they probably by this time already kind of looking like pin cushions from exactly, all the arrows exactly, already. Yeah. Okay, so that was a great battle of Carhai, and and Roman army was completely annihilated. More or less, right? yeah, more or less. It was it was it was wiped out. Um, a few captives were settled in Central Asia. Um, Crassus himself um, was decapitated, and his head was sent to the Parthian king, where it served in a uh, prop in a play. Um, rather interestingly. They didn't make him into a. They didn't make his skull into uh, a wine not, cup. Not that I recall. <laughs> okay, I I was just saying because that's a proper Central Asian tradition. Uh, I guess Parthian didn't didn't play that. Yeah, way. the okay. Parthians were a little different from the Saka, and well, I mean the Parthians were a sedentary, and by this point they were very Iranianized. They were very sedentary. They were Persianified. So uh, a little bit distant from their origin in the steppes of Central Asia. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, that's kind of the glory. Um, after that, the king of uh, king of uh, the Arsacid king, um, Orodes, he gets jealous of Surena's rising um, rising prestige, and he has him decapitated. And this act kind of starts to signal the death blow for the Arsacids. Two hundred years before, well, three hundred years before they actually fall, um, because it has them falling out with the Suren clan who live in Sistan. And the Suren, as I said earlier, were the kingmakers. Um, after this battle, um, the power of the noble houses starts to rise. And then we have um, continued turbulence and dynastic struggles until the... Mm-hmm. So let me interrupt you for a second. So at this time, just from hearing from you, it sounds like the parthian society is very feudal in structure right so you have you may have the king of kings but under him there are these different noble clans who control various uh, parts precisely, of the precisely, country, yeah. right? and um and the noble clans start they they gain in, in their power and until by the end of the end of the the Arsacid period they're sort of running the show um to an extent yeah um 
Yeah, feudal, feudal is a good way of putting it. Um, it's probably not exactly a parallel to feudal Europe, um, but it's, it's pretty close. Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, back to the story. Um, so the power of the house of the Arsacids, the, the Arsacid clan itself, starts to fall. And after this, we have a, a essentially on-off warfare with the Romans um, until the end of the dynasty. And there's a few defeats coming up. Um, and the prestige of the Arsacid starts to fall. And it continues to fall until the 3rd century AD. Okay. Uh, and the battle with Romans are just mostly bunch of uh, indecisive back and forth over Armenia, right? Over yeah, Armenia is the main Armenia. sticking point, but also um, there's quite a few territorial um, back and forths in Mesopotamia and Syria. Yeah, that's right. Um, so getting to the late um, late second century AD, um, there's some political turmoil in the Roman state between various candidates for the empire. Uh, the Parthi- the Arsacid king, uh, Balosh IV, uh, invades in uh, 161 AD. Um, he has some uh, initial victories, uh, but then has some later losses. And Dura Europos, which used to be an Orsacid um, holding, uh, fought the Romans. Um, the nobility abandon him, and Tessiphon is, sta- is sacked, and the stable borders move further east. Uh, he succeeded by Balosh the Wait, so the capital of Persian Empire, uh, Tessaphon, was sacked yeah. by the Romans. Was it? Was it? Uh, who was it? A Roman emperor who led this um, expedition? I forget which one it was. It was one of the Roman emperors. Yeah, that's right. Um, they don't hold Tessaphon. Um, okay. But yeah, they do manage to sack it, and and you know, when that happens, your prestige just takes a massive hit. Um, so the nobility. Oh yeah. And for our for our listeners who are not familiar with uh, uh, Middle East geography uh, in history, Tessaphon is uh, right in today's yeah, Iraq. Yeah, Tessaphon right? is is well, it's, it's now part of Baghdad in, in in Iraq. Yeah, exactly. Right. So so then the Persians have to relocate their capital further uh, east. Well, the Romans don't really hold it. They kind of just sack it and leave. Um, they can't maintain. Um, they can't really maintain the, these games. So you know the the the, the take back Tessaphon, uh, whatever. Um, but the stable borders are moved um, from the Euphrates banks. Um, the Romans now have Europus and a few other towns. So they're making some uh, in. They're making some conquests in northern Mesopotamia. Uh, what would now be. Where is a Europus is in eastern Syria. Um, more, the modern state of Syria, yeah. Ah, it's uh, in, in northeastern Syria, right? It's uh, kind of like where uh, there's recent battle between um, Islamic yeah, State. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, if that's its claim to fame, then I guess. I, I mean, it, it's. I just find it interesting because a lot of these ancient battleground are still bad battleground today. That's how I draw my parallels. But sorry for the interruption. Uh, please go back anyway, to the narrative. Um, yeah, so, so anyway, after Balash IV, who um, loses to Europus, um, Tessaphon is sacked, the nobility have abandoned him, things aren't looking very good, right? Um, his successor, Balash V, manages to reclaim some territories, but, you know, uh, Septimus Severus, the next Roman emperor, marches into Mesopotamia again and, you know, loses some territories again. Um, 
things aren't looking very good. And then after him, you have Balash the Sixth, who um, who, who rules in the very early third century AD. Um, his prestige doesn't exist. His throne is contended between him and another Arsacid king called Ardavon the Fourth. Um, Balash controls Mesopotamia. Ardavon controls the north. Um, at this point. So this is really remarkable because since this great glorious victory at Battle of Karhai, where um, per- Persia claimed total victory over the Romans, now the battle kind of totally shifted to the other side, right? The Roman has exactly. is on the offensive. Things have been on a uh, slow, slow decline um, since Karai, essentially. Um, yeah, and now we have two two uh, two kings, two king of kings, as anyway. Um, Balash in the south and Ardavon in the north. Um, Karakala invades because they're like, hey, they're divided. Let's go see what we can get. Um, and this culminates in the Battle of Nisibis in 217 AD. Um, the Iranians win this one. Karakala is assassinated by a soldier, and Macrinus, who is the general, the Roman general, um, sues for a peace, gives them lots of money and lots of territory um, in exchange for the peace. So that's. I'm going to stop you for a second because, uh, again, for our listeners, Nisibis is today's uh, Nusabin. In is that how you uh, say it, it? Nusabin? Yeah. In Turkey. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it's a uh, it's a uh, uh, this Kurdish uh, majority town sitting on the border of between Turkey and Syria, and there this is where a major uh, PKK insurgency happened in twenty end of a. Uh, 2016 and that whole town pretty much got leveled but that was a famous uh, city of Nisibis that was a battleground between many many Roman oh yeah absolutely. it became one of the one of the main frontier fortified cities in in the later later um centuries yeah and it's still the frontier today <laughs> yeah well it's funny how that works out uh, yeah um so the, the Parthians um, win this Battle of Nisibis, um, and that's kind of the background of what's been going on in the greater Iranian um, Arsacid state. Prestige has been on its way down. Romans have been kind of wreaking havoc. Um, people aren't very happy with the Arsacids. The, the Arsacids, they're not really protecting the Iranian people. They've kind of lost their legitimacy because they're not really winning anything. Um Wait, even after the great victory in Nisibis? It was, it was very much a Pyrrhic victory. Um, losses were heavy on both sides. And by that point, you know, the, the, the results of previous decades had sort of left their mark. Um, and Oh, and also Nisibis was Persian territory, right? It's, it's like a fought yeah, on Persian territory. Yeah, and we still have a contender, Shahan Shah, to contender king in the south. They're still, you know, Erdogan has won the battle, but they're still his brother, Balash VI, to deal with. Um, right. Yeah, so right. prestige isn't going particularly well. Uh, anyway, let's take a look at Pars um, in, in these centuries. So Pars is south, well, southern Iran. It's modern-day Pars province. It's where the old Achaemenids had their seat of power. It's where Persepolis is. It's where all the Sasanian rock reliefs are. And after the, um, after the Achaemenids... Um, Pars was ruled by a set of kings called the Fratarakah, 
who were rulers of Pars under the Seleucids. They were sort of client kings of the Seleucids. And they were fairly friendly towards the Seleucids early on. Um, they minted their own coins. They were Zoroastrian. Um, when the Arsacids took over, they became client kings of the Arsacids. Uh, they may have been descendants of the Achaemenids, but let's be real, everybody claimed to be a descendant of the Achaemenids because it's how you claim legitimacy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, sounds like so many culture, like everybody wants to be yeah. a winner. <laughs> uh, they may have been Achaemenid descendants, they may not have been, they may have just said that. Um, interestingly, in some of the coins of Pars, of the Fratarica, we, we note the fusion of religion and state. It's time to come on. So there's a particular coin, a particular king called uh, Vahbars, um, and on his coin, he says, uh, Vahbars Fratarica of the gods son of a Persian. And interestingly enough, a very similar inscription appears on certain Sasanian um, titles, which uh, is of the face of the gods, uh, essentially. Um, so we start to see this sort of infusion of religion and the state coming in in the south. Um, now, while the Fraterica are ruling Pars, um, we have the we have the Gondophorids ruling in Sistan. Now, these may have been Saka, they may have been Parthians, um, but um, they're the big players, and they sort of control the cultural sphere of eastern Iran for, for a while, for, for several centuries. Gondophares is one of the most important Indo-Parthian kings, and he's, he sort of conquers a lot of territory, and so a lot of people like to claim descent from him. The exact genealogy of the Indo-Parthian kings isn't really well known, but uh, a few generations down from Gondophares in the first century BC, we have a king called Sasis or Gondofarn Sose, and he rules in the middle of the first century AD. Um, I'll come back to him later. He's, he's an important guy to, to keep in your mind. A few generations down the line, we have uh, another king called Farnsoson. And Farnsoson, um, he again rules in the 200s AD. He's already started using the title King of Kings or Shahan Shah on his, uh, on his coins. Um, so he's another contender for the throne at this point. Um, it's not entirely clear where he came from. He may have wrestled the throne of Sistan during some political turmoils. Um, the history of Sistan is not well understood, and almost everything we know about it comes from coins. So it, it's a bit of a minefield to, to, to work through. Um, anyway, in Pars province, um, in the two, early 200s AD, we have a few interesting characters. So, so there's a character called um, Popag. Um, and Popag wasn't native to Pars. He may have come from eastern Iran. He was a local king or, or a ruler or, or landowner of a city called Khiv, which is on the southern end of Lake Bakhtagin. Um, I will send you a map so you know what I'm talking about. Um, anyway, he's a king there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he's a local king there. And his... Um, yeah, so um, he marries the daughter of a person called Sasan, and Sasan is the he's nobility, and he's the keeper of the fire at the Anahita Temple in Estachar, which is one of the main Zoroastrian religious sites. And Anahita or Anahid, he she's one of the deities. She's a combination of Ishtar, Athena, and various native deities, and she sort of became the protector of warriors and kings and 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 you know people who like to you know. Um, you know, nobility and that sort of thing. So she's linked with battles. Anyway, this is a goddess uh, 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 
that's worship at the temple where Sasang is yeah, the main Sasang is the main priest, priest right? and, and um, his daughter marries Pobak. And um, from this marriage, there's two sons. There's Shapur, who is the eldest, um, and there's Ardashir, who is the younger one. Okay? Um, now, between 206 and 212 AD, Pobak and Shapur deposed the Fratarakas. So the Fratarakas at this point, at this time, were the Bazrangi dynasty. And there's a certain Frataraka called Gozer, who was deposed by Pobak and Shapur together, right? Um, Shapur initially becomes the main heir to, uh, to Pobak. And they sort of set up camp in uh, Istakhar. Um, Ardashir is sent to Firuzabad, which is famous from the rock reliefs and also becomes his sort of first city. And um, and this is this is the time of of the king Balash and, and the war against the Romans. So you know, Arsacid prestige is on its way down. These guys are like, eh, you know what? We probably do a better job. Um, initially, so at this time, the um, the old uh, Parthian Empire, uh, uh, king of kings, is it sounds like he's more like a nominal figurehead of the the empire whereas under him many local rulers are Precisely. fighting for power Precisely, yeah we have control, lots of right? different local kings vying it out exactly um because the arsacid prestige or the parthian prestige just doesn't exist anymore um and these guys uh you know um Pabag and Shapur and Ardashir, uh, they're minting their own coins and they're founding cities, uh, which is, the Arsaces don't like that, but they have more important things to worry about, namely Romans in Tessaphon. Um, and to be fair, initially it started off as a family feud. So um, Pabag dies and he, um, he bequeaths Estacher to Shapur, who is his eldest son. Ardashir revolts against Shapur from his base in Firuzabad and launches a campaign against him and wins and captures Firuzabad, right? From then, he starts to take the rest of Parth province. Um, this is between 216, 217, and 224 AD. He's consolidating his power and he's defeating the local lords in Parth and the surrounding, surrounding regions, okay? Um, at this now is uh did did Ardashar completely defeat Shapur uh, yeah, at he this did, point? Yeah. Um, he is not. This Shapur is not to be confused with lots and lots of later Shapurs. Um, this is a completely different Shapur, who yeah yeah yeah. Um, right. Shapur is completely defeated. He actually dies um, during this. Um, yeah. So Ardashar now is like the top dog. In he Pars. Ardashar is the top dog in Pars, but he's not yet the top dog in all of Iran. He has. Ardavon, who is the Arsacid king of kings to com- contend with, he has Balosh the sixth to contend with, and then in the east he has this dude Farn Soson, who's already claiming to be king of kings to contend with as well. So there's there's other candidates for who's going to control Iran after um after these these turmoils have ended. Um, so Ardashir, um, after he's consolidated power in Pars, and- so this is like the Battle of Five Kings. In the right. Game of Thrones, I, I can't stand familiar with that. I don't actually watch Game of Thrones, so I don't know how. Yeah, yeah, I know. What? Okay, well, for our audience, for our <laughs> yeah, audience. it's sure. Let's go with that analogy. Um, anyway, Ardashir, after he's defeated the local lords, he builds a number of rock reliefs in in Pars, sort of commemorating his victory. And as he gains more and more power and prestige, his coins become more prominent. His titles become you know, more elaborate, who starts off just as king or shah, 
and then he becomes king of the Iranians or uh, Shah Iranians, and then he becomes a Shahanshah. So you know, as his power is growing, his title is growing as well. Um, in 224 AD, uh, the Arsacids are like, "Hey, we should maybe pay attention to that guy in the south. Um, let's go wipe him out because that could be trouble." So they do that, and um, this is the the, the Arsacid king Ardavan the fourth. Um, he's defeated by um, Ardashir. And this is in 224 AD, and this is commemorated in a famous rock relief at Firuzabad, um, where it's, you know, you see Ardashir's knights um, fighting with Ardavan's knights. And Ardavan himself is being toppled off a horse by Ardashir, who's sort of hitting him with his lance. Um, now, I have a question about the, that mm-hmm. famous relief. Um, did did the wrong, uh, the ancient Persia has that um, tradition of the the sculpture or was that uh imported by oh, no, sculpture definitely existed um if we're talking fully 3d sculptures they definitely existed and we have got some really cool sculptures from a uh, stately home called haji abad which is dates from the third or fourth centuries they're you know they're fully 3d unlike these rock reliefs which are kind of low relief um there's also lots of famous sculptures um during the arsacid period the most famous one being the uh prince of shami which is often confused as surina um it's the guy wearing the crossover jacket with the long sleeves and that you know really cool mustache and the hair with the headband um Ah, I thought that yeah, was Suruna too. I, I'm not sure where that I... attributions come from. Um, I mean, to be fair, Suruna probably looked pretty similar, but I don't think there's anything tying that particular sculpture to him. Uh, so there, there were uh, sculpture tradition in Iran even prior to a, a conquest of, of uh, Alexander absolutely, the absolutely. Great. And it stems right? all the way back to the Mesopotamians. Um, and it's kind of using, it's building on a tradition of art and sculpture that had been in place in Iran for you know millennia before before the Arsacids, before the Greeks turned up. I want to emphasize for our audience, for the longest time, the center of art and civilization is actually on the East Mediterranean. And most more specifically, around Mesopotamia, uh, around which Iran is. And in fact, when the um, I remember a famous line when the Persian envoy demand the the Greeks to uh, to surrender, and I forgot it was Spartan or uh, or the Athenians said. Well, these Persians are crazy. They're already incredibly rich. Why do they want like a piece of barren rock exactly. like ours? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and uh, that's basically what Alexander the Great discovered too, as he conquered Persia. He discovered a land, uh, a capital that was far richer than anything he had seen back Oh yeah, Alexander place. can easily be seen not so much as a Greek conqueror imposing you know hellenism on iran um he incorporated a lot of iranianisms into his own um well yeah into his own movement really so he married iranian princesses he dressed himself in iranian fashions um a lot of his um yeah, a lot of the Seleucid generals in later years had iranian names they used iranian military methods they again they wore iranian clothes um their coins kind of show a fusion of of, of greek and iranian customs and then we have all these iranian dynasts under the seleucids such as the frataraka of pars who are kind of you know client kings essentially 
Yeah, I mean, this reminds me of kind of China in a way because over the centuries, China has always uh, been invaded by waves after waves of different barbarian groups, and eventually they all adopt like the Chinese way, uh, you know, and and. Uh, over time become assimilated and i see the same similar pattern you oh yeah wrong as well um yeah definitely <laughs> sorry to interrupt <laughs> go back to please go no back problem, to your no narrative problem. um Ardashir, so he's defeated um defeated Ardavon, and he's built this rock relief at firuzabad and then uh he defeats he, he builds another rock relief at nagje rostam which is his investiture which is him uh getting a diadem from uh, Ohr Mazda or Ahura Mazda as he's known in English and underneath his horse's hooves is Ardavon he's dead underneath um Ohrmast hooves is um, is Ahriman or, or Zahak or, or or some some Iranian um, Iranian demon uh, figure. Um, so yeah, he's he's uh, he's going full at it with the religious propaganda. Um, of course, he still has a few other things to deal with. So um, Balosh the fifth, sixth, he's still around in southern Mesopotamia. He's defeated in two twenty nine AD, and. Then he has uh, Eastern Iran to deal with. So he first goes to Sistan, um, which is the seat of this, uh, this king called Farnsosan, who also calls himself a king of kings and may have been another contender. Um, he was easily the most important guy in Eastern Iran at the time. He's defeated. There's really no details as to how he's defeated because all that happens is his coins stop existing, and that's kind of all we know about it. Um, and then after Sistan, he goes to Gorgon, which is the southern, uh, well, southeastern Caspian coast region. And from there goes to Abarshahr, which is modern-day Neshapur. And then from there goes to Marv, which is in modern-day Turkmenistan, and uh, sets up his northeastern capital in Marv. And Marv would continue to be one of the most important Sasanian cities in the Northeast, um, essentially being the frontier city against the Turks, the Heftalites, and, and, you know, all those kind of guys. Um, and that's where today's yeah, Turkmenistan, Turkmenistan is. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, um, Adashir is coronated in Tessaphon in 226 AD and, uh, makes another fancy rock relief for himself. And, um, that's the story kind of of how he, came from essentially a nobody in Pars province, uh, just some random rebel dude, to the king of kings of all of Iran. And being from Pars, uh, is he seen as more Persian than, say, like the the previous so dynasty? he definitely likes to paint himself out as being more Persian than the previous dynasty. Now, he wasn't from Pars originally. He was probably from eastern Iran, um, and then, you know, he settled in Pars, or at least um, Pabag and Sosan, you know, they, they probably did. Um, but no, Ardashir claims descent, descent from the Achaemenids, definitely. Uh, but then again, who doesn't? Um, and he says the Arsacids are foreign imposters. Um, and so, you know, what he does is, is he tries to erase the memory of the Arsacids to increase his own legitimacy. Uh, now, bear in mind, um, the prestige of the Arsacids didn't exist, but this is just some random upstart. Like, why should people follow him as opposed to do their own thing? So he has to he has to really work on propagandizing his own legitimacy. Um, now, we know that Ardashir 
had some reverence for the Achaemenids because we found graffitos uh, depicting him and Shahpur and Pobag at Persepolis, uh, you know, the old Persepolis of the Achaemenids. Uh, so the site probably had some importance to him. And then uh, later on, uh, when the Persians are, are conquering Duryaropos, there's other graffitos um, which depict, um, you know, which may depict Achaemenid stories. And, and it tells, uh, the graffito tells them that the, the Persians are very pleased to see this graffito. So there is some memory of, of the Achaemenids. And, and Ardashir is definitely claiming descent from them. But he can't completely decry the Arsacids because, you know, I mean, they have just held Iran for 500 years. They've defeated the Romans a number of times. They've held their own against the Romans and all the, the, the nomads in the northeast. And um, Ardashir marries Ardavan's daughter. And Shapur, his son, this is a different Shapur to the Shapur from earlier. Um, this Shapur is, is half Parthian. Um, well, so the story says. Um, Ardashir writes down his, well, a mythical biography called the Kor Nomage Ardashir Epobagon. And in this story, Shapur is half Parthian. Uh, now, this is actually a very common theme in Iranian history. Um, going back to the Achaemenids, Cyrus the Great, um, his mother was the daughter of the king of the Medes against whom he rebelled. And then there's similar stories um, following the fall of the Sasanians in, um, in, uh, in Tabaristan, which is... Um, the southern coast of the Caspian Sea, where the the Bovandids claim a very similar um, similar descent, essentially being the, uh, you know, related to the dynasty you've just defeated. Yeah, because the continuity is very important, right? So legitimacy in continuity. Exactly, exactly. And the Arsacids were the enemy, but you know they were still you still had to link yourself to them, especially as they had linked themselves to the Achaemenids as well. An all-out break would really not have been that good an idea, um, especially as the Parthian noble houses um, they were still very big players, and so the Sasanians might have struck various contracts with the Parthian noble houses to ensure their cooperation against the Arsacids. And these are noble houses such as the Surin, who we've already come across earlier. Then there's the Karin, um, the Espahbodon, the Mehran, um, you know, those, those sorts of big, important families. Uh, now, the Sasanians, or, or Ardashir, did attempt to obliterate the history of the Arsacids to increase their legitimacy. And they also, also shortened the duration of the Arsacid um, or Sausset era in the official histories, which is reflected in the modern Shahname. Um, and this was to do with Zoroastrian apocalyptic predict predictions. Um, namely, you couldn't have the apocalypse coinciding with the Sasanian rule. So um, let's just shift everything back a couple of hundred years and maybe the apocalypse will happen later, you know. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's a great way to. Just, just change the numbers on the calendar precisely yeah let's just do that <laughs> um, yeah anyway so so that's the story of how Ardashir came to be the king of kings um, he then has quite a lot of work to do to stabilize everything so he's managed to manage to gain the cooperation of the noble houses he has the Romans in the west and they're sort of the, the big nemesis and the borders changed quite a lot between, um, you know, 190 and what is now 224, 226 AD. Uh, namely, it had gone further east into Mesopotamia, into northern, uh, into eastern Syria. And Ardashir is like, hey, uh, that border is really close to our capital. We should do something about that. So 
In uh, 230 AD, he launches uh, a campaign into Roman territories um, in order to sort of restore the pre-200 AD borders to give a bit more of a buffer to his capital in Tesphon. Um, now, these first conflicts, nothing really happens either way. Um, Ardashir unsuccessfully besieges Nisibis and, and raids Syria. And then um, Alexander Severus, who's a Roman emperor, he launches counteroffensive and no one really wins or loses any territory. Um, nothing much happens. And this conflict only lasts a few years. Um, Alexander Severus dies in 239 AD. And then Ardashir uh, recommences warfare and he conquers Duryaropos, Karai, Nisibis, and after a very long siege, captures Hatra as well. Um, in 240 AD, he co-regents with his son Shapur I. Now, he had a lot of different sons, and this was one way to ensure that Shapur would become the king of kings, the Shahanshah, as opposed to the various other sons. Um, so standard practice in, in Iran was the first son would become the heir, and then the other sons would become governors of various provinces. And this could be a bit of a stickler for succession because the other sons would often want a piece of the action. And this happens a lot later on in Iranian history. Thankfully, this particular handover is relatively seamless because there is a co-regency for a few years. Um, and um, yeah, and then, um, you know, we have further conflicts, uh, further conflicts with the Romans. So 242 AD, um, Gordian, who's another Roman emperor, succeeded Severus, and then he attacks uh, attacks Iran to reclaim some of the lost territories, while Shapur is busy consolidating his power in eastern Iran. Uh, now Nisibis and Karai are lost. You know this is this is the classic back and forth of the Iranian Persian Wars. Um, Shapur returns to the west and he defeats Gordian at a battle of uh, Misica in. 244 AD, Gordian, um, Gordian dies. Now, it's unclear how exactly he dies. He may have been killed in battle, um, or he may have been assassinated by a disaffected soldier later on. Um, the narrative uh, propagated by Shapur I is that um, he was killed in battle. And you'd want to say that because, you know, you kill a Roman emperor in battle, your prestige goes through the roof, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Gordian is succeeded by an emperor called Philip the Arab, who uh, sues for peace by giving the Persians a lot of money and a lot of land. And um, that's kind of the end of that first conflict in, in the 240s. Um, now, later on, you have a Roman emperor called Valerian, who is, uh, who is somewhat famous because of how he ends up. Um, he fights against Shapur I at a battle of Barbalisos, and he is completely defeated um, in 253. And then after this, the Persians capture Antioch in 253, Duryaropos again in 256, Edessa in 260, and Valerian himself is is captured and he becomes a prisoner, um, probably in in uh, in Pars again. Um, a lot of his soldiers become prisoners in Pars and they build the uh, city of Bishapur. And Bishapur is interesting because there's Roman mosaics there uh, showing you know Roman styles of art. It may have been the prisoners from uh, from the, these these early wars with Shapur. Well, that's one of the feature of the uh, Sasanians, right? They, they when they capture uh, prisoners, they re relocate them to a, a city and make them build their own settlement, basically, right? And then also that allows these prisoners to retain some of their uh, culture and arts and. Traditions. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, it happened now, and the same thing happened immediately after Karai, where Roman uh, prisoners were sent to northeastern Iran. 
um, and and they were settled there. Uh, we don't know what happened to them, but you know. Yeah, that's where they ended up. But this is, we're really talking about this glory day of uh, the Sasanians right now, right? I mean, Shapur was uh, one of the most glorious king of kings. He he really um, gave Romans their bloody exactly. nose so in Syria. Shapur, and- um, as he proclaims on his own rock reliefs at uh, Najirostan, he killed one Roman emperor. He made another one his tributary and then he captured one. That's incredible. But the visual representation, you have to talk about the rep- how the how it was visually represented in the in the Absolutely. Rock so, you have Shapur on his horse and and he's depicted in Stanley, you know, usual Sasanian um, royal regalia. He's got his crenellated crown um, with a big uh, big corymbos on his head. And and this corymbos it's huge, and it's huge because, you know, legitimacy and, and big-headedness and stuff. And um, uh, underneath, underneath his horse's hooves, you have the, um, the, the body of, um, of Gordian. He's, he's dead. And then in front of his horse, you have Philip the Arab. He's on his knees. He's giving tribute. And then you have Valerian, whose, whose hand is being held. He's being captured. And then behind Shapur, you have all the Sasanian grandees. And this rock relief is... is, is you're completely stunning for the political ideology and the, the propaganda it gives off. Um, it's saying, I have defeated three Romans. I am the most awesome guy on the planet. And the size, the physical size it's, of it is massive, big. It's big. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if uh, one of our audience, if you ever thought about traveling to Iran, make sure to visit that rock relief. We will put pictures on our Patreon page uh, so you can take a look. But it's just really amazing. Sasanian rock art in general is, is, is absolutely incredible. And, and the cool thing is that we can actually see the progression of royal sort of ideology and royal propaganda all the way from um, Ardashir the first, um, you know, through to... Um, the fourth century, through the Hormozd and and and, um, and Bahram and, and those sorts of kings. So Ardashir the first in his first rock reliefs, his first rock reliefs at Firuzabad is is actually pretty modest. You know, you got him and he's receiving an investiture ring from from Ohrmazd, and there's there's a handful of other nobility or family members around. That that's kind of it. And Ardashir is wearing a typical hat. It's not a crown. It's a hat. It's a very decorative hat. It's got like pearls or gold plates and stuff on it but you know it's just a hat and then later on he develops the corimbos which is that big ball that sits on the top of his head and then uh shapur you know shapur himself has a proper crown a proper crown with crenellations and and the corimbos just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then later on we have various kings adding lots of cool things to their crowns such as such as crescent moons, which usually sit on the front, um, or wings, which come off the side or off the top. And by the time of the later Sasanian, um, Sasanian Shahanshahs, such as uh, Kavod I and Khosrow Anushirvan and Khosrow Parviz, these crowns are just completely magnificent. You know, you have, you have a crescent moon in the front, just above the forehead, and then there's four crenellated things uh, going around the side, and there's jewels everywhere. And then coming off the top, there's a pair of wings, and then another crescent moon, and then on top of that, there's the corimbos. And it's said that the crown of um, of Khosrow of, uh, Parviz was so heavy, he couldn't actually support it on his own neck. It had to be suspended above his head on a <laughs> set of chains. And it's like, yeah, that's the kind of headgear wow. I want to be wearing. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, you got to send us some yeah, Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Sasanian crowns are actually a really interesting to study in and of themselves. And we're getting um, into the legacy of the Sasanians now because Sasanian crowns have a lot of interesting motifs that appear everywhere in, in Eurasia. So let's um, taking a step back. So Sasanian coins, um, they start producing very, very thin coins and very, very pure silver. And one of the major mints is in um, is in now modern day Afghanistan. I think it's Kabul or Herat, one of those cities. Um, but these coins essentially become the U.S. dollar of its day. They're sort of legal tender across Eurasia because of the quality of of these coins and because of how consistent they are. And because, well, out of all the other states in Asia, this is one of the more stable ones. Um, you know, the Hunnic states aren't as stable. The Sogdian states are nowhere near as big and nowhere near as stable. Um, the Sasanian state is one of the more stable ones. And so these coins become legal tender across Eurasia. You have these coins turning up um, as far away as China and as far away as, as Britain. It's probably not evidence for direct trade, but um, you know, certainly there was economic activity going on that could lead to these coins appearing in, in really far away places. Um, Right, like a diffusion of trade, right? I mean, uh, I think some of these coins turn up in oh, Japan yeah. as There's well. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of Sasanian things turning up in Japan. Um, most famously, Sasanian glass turns up in Japan, and it's exported via sea trade um, across the Indian Ocean to Japan. There's quite a lot of it, and it must have been very expensive when it got there because to travel all that distance, something as fragile as glass and as precious as glass, you'd have to have been very rich to import it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So getting back to the coins, um, a lot of Hunnic rulers and a lot of Sogdian rulers start incorporating Sasanian emblems on their royal iconography, whether it be coins or sculptures or paintings. Um, so the wing, wings and moons um, are sort of the most common one, in, common one in East Iran. And so a lot of these East Iranian Hunnic, Sogdian, even some rulers in Xinjiang, um, they have a crescent moon in the center, and they'll have wings on each side. And um, there's actually been quite a few finds of similar similar crowns. Uh, there's a famous one um, in, in Xinjiang, which is a complete crown. Um, it has a big crescent moon with a, a sort of a star in the middle, two wings, and then two more crescent moons on the side. Um, this harks back to Sasanian traditions, because the Sasanians were using wings on their crowns as early as the 3rd century AD, and they started using crescent moons I mean, again, in their very early years, um, Central Asian coins kind of start to copy uh, coins of Peros. Now, Peros was a Sasanian emperor who ruled in the 5th century AD, and um, he is somewhat famous for um, for losing um, the war to the Hephthalites. Um, but as a result, the Hephthalites started copying his coins, and they, they often just overstruck it with their own tamgas. But later on, they developed their own coin styles, which incorporated um, sort of Peros style crowns and with lots of other motifs. Um, we see these winged moon crowns again appearing in Sogdian sculpture, uh, Sogdian painting, where they're depicted very realistically, and um, you, you know, essentially across Eurasia. And they even appear on military equipment. Um, so the Persians didn't really use wings on their helmets. The early, early Sasanians, um, well, the kings did, um, but that's kind of all we have evidence for. Um, but wings on helmets became very popular in Xinjiang between the 6th and 8th centuries. And it's possible that these, these wings um, 
started to be depicted less as wings and more as upturned cheek cheek plates uh, along with the crescent moon and these upturned cheek plates sort of remained being a thing um, and they sort of spread into japan and it's it sort of gave rise to the the sort of you know the frontal crest and the upturned little curvy things that you see on samurai helmets uh that may well be ah, <laughs> that may well be that a very sense. distant descendant of sasanian royal iconography well into what the 18th century <laughs> Wow, I, I, that totally makes sense because um, the Sasanian influence was heavily felt among Sogdians, and then Sogdians in turn transmitted a lot of this influence into China, into Tang China, and uh, Tang China just happened to be a big cultural influencer of Japan. Um, so you know, through this intermediary, it finally we got yeah. the samurai. Yeah, helmets. I know. It, it's um, it, I think it's one of, one of the coolest sort of um, links that that, that I've, I've I've come across. Um, there's more obvious ones. Um, so for example, the Sasanian art style influenced Sogdian painting quite a lot. And so there's a painting in a sixth century painting. I think it's near Bukhara called Uchkulakh, which it looks very Sasanian. Um, it looks like the Sasanian rock reliefs at Bandion. They have similar clothes. The horses are depicted similarly. The horses have similar jewelry. They're in very similar poses um, from what still survives of the painting. And then Sasanian um, metalwork, for example, luxury tableware. They developed this lobed bowls and, and jugs, which again became luxury tableware in Tang China. And then the Tang kept on using this style. And I think... I have seen lobed bowls, um, even dated to the Yuan dynasty. They look a little different. You can tell they're obviously not Sasanian, but you can definitely see the link with them. Um, oh, yeah. I see a lot of Sasanian influence in uh, Tang cultural artifact. Uh, one of the things uh, is fashion. Like There's uh, the Sasanian collar. That was hugely popular among Sogdians. And then uh, you also got transferred to Tang. During Tang Dynasty, a lot of men's clothing has it that kind of like the... It's, it's, it's um, that coat with the big two lapels. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Oh, man. So yes. I absolutely love these coats. Yes. I think they look so cool. Um, and I mean, these coats aren't actually Sasanian to start off with. So the earliest find of one of these coats is from Yingpan, uh, the, Ying, the famous Yingpan man from the Tarim Basin mummies, who is dated to the 3rd century AD. Oh, but wow. prior to that, we have a depiction of these kind of coats in a place called Fayaz Tepe, which is in Bactria, which is dated to, the I think, the 1st century AD. It's, it's during the Kushan period. And so they're wearing these coats with lapels. Um, now at the time, they're on buttons, so they're using ties to tie these lapels up. Um, and then eventually, one lapel develops into two, ties develop into buttons. The Sasanians definitely wore these because they're, you can see them depicted at the late Sasanian rock reliefs at, um, at um, uh, what's it called, Torre Boston in the hunting relief. They wear these coats. And we have a, a few finds of these coats actually from Sasanian Egypt. Uh, from a place called Anti Antinoe or Antinopolis. And they're made of wool. And again, they have this one lapel, which which is folded out. You can see reconstructions of all these clothings on the uh, Aeron or Turon, um, Turon page. So. Oh, yeah. We definitely need a lot of visual aid. So if you can send us some pictures, we oh, can yeah, post it on our Patreon page for yeah, of course, our yeah. listeners. Um, now, getting back to clothing, Sasanian fashion did, or Iranian fashion, did influence um, Central Asian and Chinese. Now, I say Iranian fashion because 
it, a lot of it wasn't really developed in Western Iran. A lot of it was developed in Eastern Iran. Um, for example, these lapel coats were an Eastern Iranian thing. Um, you have a, a famous style of tunic where there's a, you know, it's just a tunic, but then there's a, a vertical decorated band which goes down the front, which is really common in Hatrain and Palmarine sculptures. Again, that's probably an East Iranian development. And I've seen um, paintings from the northern and southern dynasties in China, which so, show tunics that look like this. Um, yeah, and by East Iranian, uh, you mean from the region, what is today's Afghanistan, um, parts of Pakistan and like Turkmenistan, and, right? Turkmenistan and even parts of uh, Central yeah, Asia, like it would, be, it would be that sort of area. Um, yes. Uh, so East Iran played a very heavy influence in in Western affairs um, in developing royal ideology. So I mentioned these things called Korimboy earlier, which are those big globes that you see on top of crowns. Um, you also occasionally see them on shoulders of the King of Kings in, in Iran. And this actually goes all the way back to the Greco-Bactrian kingdom, where they're shown with palm leaves um, on their shoulders, on their coins. Um, this develops into a pluff, uh, sorry, a, a tuft of horsehair. Um, or in Kushan coins, it's called a flaming shoulder motif, which is, is linked to Buddhism. Um, this becomes a tuft of horsehair, which is evidenced in, in sort of Roman military manuals. And the Sasanians covered this with, with, uh, with, a, with a silk panel, and it sort of became a, a marker of rank in the Sasanian military. We see these shoulder um, Korimboy as early as Firuzabad, as early as the 3rd century AD on the rock reliefs of, of uh, Ardashir I. And we see them as late as the 6th or 7th centuries AD on, uh, on, um, on, uh, on artwork from, uh, from Khosrow Parviz's rule. And one thing I want to go back to is that Shapur I, he actually lived in a very interesting time. For people who are familiar with the Western history, this is around the time that's known as the crisis of the third century in the Roman history. And uh, basically, the Roman Empire was kind of coming apart. <laughs> it, it, was. it was, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the Sasanians actually played a pretty important role in that because they were so aggressive on the Roman Eastern frontier. Um, it destabilized, economically destabilized the Roman state. And that's what led to the political destabilization of the Roman state as well. Also, it didn't help that several <laughs> emperors met their end in, in times of, in terms exactly. of, uh, yeah, in the in, hands exactly. of the Sasanians. And, and in a Roman, in a Roman uh, state at the time, you know, when the emperor goes, a lot of things goes. I mean, like, there's a scramble of power after each emperor is gone. Yeah. So that didn't help. And then there uh, you know, there was a lot of interesting character around the time. There was a Queen Zenobia uh, in Syria at the time, and she kind of rose rose to power and almost carved up a huge Eastern Empire uh, right on the doorstep of uh, in between Rome and 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 uh, Sasanian Persian. So that was a fascinating, fascinating absolutely. Palmyra, Palmyra um, was actually very wealthy because it, it was one of those merchant states, so it became very wealthy, and uh, the Palmyrians managed to actually hold their own against Shapur uh, for a while um, until they were subdued by the Romans. And the yeah. Palmarines had Iranian-style um, Iranian cavalry. Um, actually, Iranian cavalry influenced Roman cavalry as well. Um, so, um, so, you know, the, the, the Roman cataphracts, the Roman clivinari were based on the Iranian model. And the Roman horse archers 
Um, they may have been based on either an Iranian model or a steppe nomad model. Um, but you know, we have we have these uh, these Eastern military um, technologies spreading to the West, and the Roman yeah the Roman cataphracts oh, may yeah. well have been the forerunners of the medieval knight. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah, exactly. it is. <laughs> I mean, um, so, I mean, the Iranian um, Iranian military model, um, their armor was incredibly sophisticated. So, as early as the um, well, maybe in the second century AD, they start using mail armor. Mail armor is developed in in Europe, and the Romans are using it a lot. And you know, probably by the second or maybe the first century AD, it spreads to Iran. And uh, there's a very famous uh, little drawing from Duria Ropos dated to the late second century AD of a, of a of an Arsacid or an Iranian lancer wearing a helmet with what looks like a, a face veil of mail, and he's wearing um, armor made of plates on his abdomen and arm armor made of uh, overlapping bands, which harks back to a Central Asian tradition. And then he's got armor on his legs that's, again, made of overlapping bands that harks back to a Central Asian tradition. Um, his horse is completely armored as well, covered in, in scale, or possibly lamellar armor. You, the drawing's pretty crude, you can't really tell. Um, but uh, And there was that famous uh, rock relief of a of a uranium cataphract too, like completely covered in armor. There's right? a few you know what I'm talking them. about. There's quite a few of them. Um, so, practically, a, a lot of the early rock reliefs have um, kings in armor. Um, certainly, the Firuzabad jousting reliefs, where Ardashir and Ardavan are fighting, they're all depicted in armor, and they're all wearing a lot of armor. They have their entire bodies protected, their legs are protected, their feet are protected, their hands are protected, their horses are protected. They're not wearing helmets, but this is a heroic battle, so you want to see their faces without their helmets. Uh, you know that's artistic tradition. The Parthians, the Arsaces, are wearing helmets right. because they're the losers. You know they're not the heroes. Over their head. Ah. <laughs> um, ah, um, later on, you have the rock reliefs of uh, Hormuz and Norse. They're jousting, and they're depicted in full armor. Again, it's very sophisticated. A body armor made of plates um, or mail or lamellar. Leg armor made of overlapping bands with a separate greave, uh, knee cop, and crease. Um, so a greave is for the lower leg and a crease is for the upper leg. And then they have this arm armor made of overlapping bands. And by the 4th century... It's probably made in two parts, a separate um, spalder rear brace, which covers the shoulder down to the elbow, and then a hinged van brace, which covers the entire circumference of the, of the forearm. Um, and then they have these ornate helmets, um, often decorated in textile with, um, with, with mail or scale or padded hangings uh, with these big corimboy or, or you know, those, those, those globes, those pom-poms on their helmets at, at the top. Um, the Iranian armor tradition, again, influenced the Romans. Um, the Romans, um, in the third century, they, 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 they're, uh, there's an interesting passage where they're describing the Iranian cataphracts. And then they say, the Persians, who call their cataphracts clivinarii, um, there's a lot of debate as to what these terms actually mean. Um, in my opinion, clivinarii is the direct Latin translation. It means bread oven in Latin. And it's the direct Latin translation of the Iranian tanuri which was probably a, uh, a technology of wearing a cuirass over mail. You know, it, again, it, it means oven. Um, tanur is, uh, your listeners might know from tandur or tanduri, which is like a, a style of Indian chicken. Um, <laughs> um, but, it, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a way of, of, of layering your armor. So you have mail, which is relatively flexible and it can 
cover your underarms and your groin and things. And then you have uh, a lamellar or a scale or, or a plate harness on top of that for a bit of added protection. Oh, can you explain really briefly yeah, what is uh, a lamellar? So lamellar um, is, is armor made of small plates that has been laced together. And that's about as basic as I can, as I can say it, because there's a lot of different styles of lamellar. Um, the most famous examples are probably the Tibetan harnesses in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the, Ash, um, the Pitt Rivers and the National Museum of Edinburgh, where there's lots of pla- plates and there's leather laces connecting them. And um, you can change the flexibility of the armor depending on how tightly you lace it together. And so sometimes you just had a, a lamellar that covered the, the chest and the back. Sometimes you'd have entire one-piece harnesses that would go all the way from the elbows to the shoulders to the, to the floor. And you can make them from one piece because it can be made flexible. Um, so, but the uranium armor is a combination of plate armor yeah, and lamellar um, armor? Yeah, there's lots of different styles. There's no real uniform style, um, at least not in this period. So mail is becoming common, and the Sasanians like to use long-sleeved mail. Um, but they also use uh, lamellar for their torsos and sometimes for the shoulders. They also use banded armor, um, which is where you have um, bands of metal that are either laced together. Um, again, think um, there's, a, there's a type of, you know, think samurai armor, it's similar to that. Uh, they're either laced together or they're riveted onto uh, an underlying leather strips. And again, this is very flexible. So um, I, I have one of these and for my arms and it, it covers most of the arm and, and it is flexible enough to shoot uh, shoot a bow and arrow with um, because of the way the plates overlap with each other. Um, they use a similar armor for their legs as well. It's made of these overlapping bands. Um, exactly. There is some evidence for plate armor, um, although it's not really depicted in very high detail in the early Sasanian period. There's a rock relief um, from um, Elimayas in, in, in southern Iran, dating from the first century AD, which may show an early type of plate armor similar to the uh, Japanese tanko cuirasses. Um, we certainly have very high detailed depictions of such a such an armor in the sixth century um, from uh, from Tohe Bostan, and we have again fairly clear depictions of this this style of armor in Central Asia uh, from a handful of Sogdian reliefs and a handful of paintings in Xinjiang dating to the sixth and seventh centuries. You're gonna images, have to hook images, up of course. Us yeah, some pictures. <laughs> I, I, yes. Exactly. Yes, we need my, my main aid. thing is is sort of fashion history and art history. So I, I'm just talking about paintings and, and sculptures and stuff. Um, but I'll send you guys some pictures. Yeah. Yeah, and okay, this is a fascinating, fascinating talk. And if our audience want to find out more about what you do and uh, and to see some of these armor. Uh, and costume you mentioned. Uh, so, um, where where would they Google, go? Um, the name of our group, Eron Uturon. That's spelled E R A N space U D space space T U R A N. And you'll find our Facebook, which has probably the best uh, images on it. You'll find our Instagram, which has a lot of uh, pictures on. You'll find our official website, and you'll find our Patreon. So um, yeah, check out all of those sources um, and get in touch. Okay. Um. If you send me those links, I will put them in in our show notes, so everybody, uh, our listeners, sure will have sure access thing. to them as well. Is there anything to else you'd off. like to add? To, to um, finish off, promote? I'm just going to mention very quickly <laughs> yes. um, about what happened to the Sasanians after the Sasanians. So we've been talking a lot about China um, during the second half of this this show. The last Sasanian dynasts ended up in China, and they were aided by the Tang court in sort of trying to reclaim Sistan, the all-important East Iranian province, from the Arabs, admittedly unsuccessfully. But 
they were so the Sasanians were so important that everybody wanted to be a Sasanian. So in the ninth century, you have a uh, a general called um, who, who founds the Safarid dynasty in eastern Iran, where else? And uh, he claims that he will fly the Darashikovioni in Baghdad. Now, the Darashikovioni is the it's a Sasanian flag. It it's um it's it's got like a, a sort of flower thing, and it's shades of gold and purple and red, and it's covered in jewels. And so he claims he's going to fly this in, in Baghdad. Unfortunately, he never quite manages to do it. But then later on, you have a dynasty called the Buyids, who start off in uh, northern Iran. They claim descent from the Sasanians. Um, probably the most famous one are the Samanids, who uh, start off around Samarkand and Bukhara. They claim descent from the Mihrans, who are one of the big Parthian clans who ruled under the uh, Sasanians. Talking about the Mithrans is probably outside the scope of this podcast, but let's say they became really important in the 6th uh, century onwards. Um, and the Samanid, uh, it's, it's like the first, it's considered the first Persian empire after, after the basically Arab- the um, yeah, Islamic I mean, conquest, I don't know right? if that reputation is entirely accurate because... Prior to that, you had the Safarids and you had the Tahirids, and um, who were also Iranian. And to be honest, the Abbasids um, they started off Iranian as well. The Umayyads were, yeah, the Umayyads were oh, very much Arab, even though they appropriated practically everything from the Sasanians. So their coins are Sasanian, their methods of governance were Sasanian, their art, well, it's a continuation of Sasanian art forms. Um, Right, but the Abbas said their power base initially yeah. was in Khorasan, right? And they, they led their Khorasan uh, forces to basically <laughs> did, a, did a revolution against the Umayyad. So, yes, they're very, very much uh, Iranian influence. And, um, and what I was going to say is that, uh, um, in fact, the, the, the Samanid, the, the importance of the Samanid in Central Asia is that they sponsored exactly. Uh, Ferdowsi, so Ferdowsi right? was writing his Shahnameh, and I've mentioned the Shahnameh earlier, very briefly. But it's sort of the mythological history of Iran, starting from the early mythological era of, of the Kayanids and and um, and and uh, Rostam and, and and those guys, all the way up to the end of the Sasanian dynasty, and. Um, it's written in a very, um, very nostalgic way because, well, everyone wanted to be a Sasanian, so you had to link yourself with the Sasanians um, at this point. It's like a romantic, yeah, precisely, uh, epic poem, precisely. right? Now, the the um, the Shahnameh, the the historical part of it, um, has its origins in the Sasanian period, where the Sasanians start writing their own official histories, and it's called the Khwadainamag. Um, so that's where the historical part of it comes from. The mythological part of it is probably based on um, stories and fables from Sogdiana or, or Sistan or Bactria. So the, Rostam is a Sogdian or Bactrian hero. Um, in Sogdian art, he's depicted like a heftalite with an elongated head. and a, 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 Yeah, uh, he's not a West oh, Iranian wow. figure. He has his origins in Sistan, um, as well as a lot of the other heroes like Faramars. They're all Sistani heroes. They're not Persian um, oh, that totally makes sense because I have seen a, a painting of Rastan by a famous, famous Tang uh, court a painter who was originally from, I think, the area in Khotan, Xinjiang. Um, 
and and he painted this very Sasanian <laughs> portrait of Rostan. And uh, but the, the the fact that you said that Rostan is a Central Asian hero, it totally makes sense because it's in that that's in yeah, the general yeah. So, area. Yeah, he was right? probably Saka or um, or or Sistani or, or you know that area, East Iran, um, as opposed to Western. Even though he's sort of you know the, the Persian national hero, as opposed to you know maybe the the, the Pashto or, or the Palmyri national hero. Um, I guess that that's what happened. Um, you know, so the Shahnameh was written in Persian and not Sogdian or Bactrian, because Sogdian and Bactrian started to die out after the after the Arab conquest, and Persian became the main language. Yeah, do you know what happened? How did that transition came about? That's the part I'm al- always not so clear about because, uh, you know, I know so- before Sogdian reigned spring before the Arab conquest, but somehow there was a switch where uh, yeah, the so language shifted. You're completely correct. Sogdian was the main language um, across the Silk Road prior to the Arab conquest um, because the Sogdians were the, the main movers and shakers on the Silk Road. But what happened after the Arab conquest, um, early Arab society was divided into Arabs and non-Arabs. And the biggest group of non-Arabs were the Persians. Um, and so over time, Sogdians and Bactrians and Khorasmians, they, I, you know, they were like, well, we're not Arab, so we must be Persian. So they started to identify more with with the Persians than with their own sort of own identity, really. Um, and so they started speaking in Persian, hence the language. And then they also started, you know, using Persian um, methods of sealing documents, for example, uh, sealing letters. They started um, uh, referring to them, giving themselves Persian names instead of Sogdian names or Bactrian names. And yeah, that's kind of kind of what happened there. Yeah, because in fact, I when I look upon the Islamic Golden Age, one of the surprising thing I find is a lot of the inventors and the famous, um, uh, all these famous uh, personages. They're, they're all, all a lot all of them Central are East Asian. Iranian, Almost like um, Central Asian. They're all Iranian yes. Central Asians. Yeah, exactly. Yes, um, so East yes. Iran, quite interesting yeah. because unlike the yeah, West. Like, um, unlike the old Sasanian territory. So Sasanian society was actually fairly hierarchical and it was relatively difficult to move um, outside your social class. But Sogdiana was completely different. Sogdiana was a mercantile society. And so, you know, you could make it big starting from nothing relatively, well, I wouldn't say easily, but it was doable. It had a much more, much higher social mobility than Western Iran. And this is maybe one of the reasons why Eastern Iran, Central Asia, becomes the, the night, it becomes sort of the hub for um, Iranian culture and Iranian resistance against Arabs and stuff. Um, and, and for people, our audience, when we talk about Sogdiana, we're talking about the area of Central Asia that consists of um, to present day Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Afghanistan, and and also the uh, the most eastern part of uh, Iran, like the Khorasan. Yeah, province. I mean it's a bit smaller than that. The, it's, the, it's, the, it's kind of um, eastern Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, and a little bit of northern uh, Afghanistan. Uh, what you're referring to is the administrative province called Khorasan. Um, yeah. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I, I included the Bactria. Okay, I I, I throw in Horasan, Bactria, I mean, to be Sogdiana fair, so all together. Arab because, um, um, so the Arab governors. So I don't blame you for that. Yes, yes. And, 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 but, the, 
but to, to for a practical purpose, after our Arab conquest, that whole area kind of did have this con- exactly, uh, cultural exactly. continuum, and right? Also importantly, they had Turks right there who were really good warriors and could press home the Iranian cultural cultural sphere if needed. Yes, yes, that's the most interesting part because a lot of uh, one of the uh, one of the side effect of the Arab conquest was actually the spread of the Persian language and culture throughout much of Central exactly. Asia and Northern India. And, and yeah, and even, uh, I would say even Xinjiang was very heavily influenced Definitely. by it's, it's the Persian whole, culture. We're not Arabs, um, so we must be Persian, sort of dichotomy that a lot of these East Iranian peoples, uh, you know, essentially did. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, that that I think that's probably one of the reasons in China, a lot of time, Silk Road is... Yeah. associated with Persians, right? Even though in the past, they were actually like a motley crew of people. Uh, and a lot of times, actually, the Sogdians. But but in today's modern China context, right. people just associate with Persians. And they think that must be oh, right. the, the modern cool. Iran, right? Yeah, uh, this is a fascinating, fascinating talk. I mean, like we could uh, just talk and <laughs> geek out for hours. We, we definitely could. want you. We have strayed several centuries from our uh, from our intended topic, um, but I mean, it helps paint the picture. It helps paint the legacy. So I, I hope your listeners will appreciate it. Yes, yes, this is a oh, definitely. I hope this is just the start of a series on the Sasanian. Persia, which is a glorious, glorious empire. Um, and, and thank you very much, thank Nadine, you so much for, for, for coming to the show. So that was our excellent guest, Nadine Ahmed, on the rise of the Sasanian Persian Empire. After the show, Nadine actually told us about his friend, an uh, expert on the Roman-Persian battle of Karhai which he covered just briefly on the show. So we're going to have this expert to come to the show and talk exclusively about the Battle of Karhai for an entire episode. We will probably make it a premium episode for our subscribers. So if you like this episode, make sure you subscribe. Our Patreon link will be in the show notes or... You can search in Google for my entire name. That's Carl, start with a C, C-A-R-L, last name Z-H-A, Z as in zebra, H as in Henry, A as in apple. Again, Patreon is the only place where we host our premium episodes for our subscribers, and I do hope you subscribe. I hope all of you guys have enjoyed the show, and until next time, bye-bye.